Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Wednesday's Plumfield in Person. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft, and I'm here today with Sarah Mastarik. How are you, Sarah? I'm great, Diane. Thank you. It's a little different. I don't think that we've ever done an episode of just the two of us yet, have we? No, not yet. So we're starting our series on how books get made. And so we thought, well, let's go back to how books got made, which was a long, long time ago. How have people been doing it for thousands of years? (laughs) I'm excited about this as we go forward and we talk with a number of publishers that we're having on about how books are made today, I think it's really important to remember the labor and the artistry and the commitment that went into making these books originally. And I think that Mm -hmm. speaks very clearly also to what these small publishers are trying to accomplish today. Mm -hmm. Yes. And there's definitely labor and artistry involved a thousand years ago than there. Well, a different kind, I guess. Yeah, I would but say the a commitment was totally different. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I don't think any of the publishers we're having on are monks living in monasteries. <laughs> no, writing the books by hand. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, Diane, a few years ago, you were teaching in a classical school. Mm-hmm. And over the years or over your time at that school, you would do a unit on the Middle Ages. And you would focus in specifically on how books were made at that time. Mm -hmm. And so on our website, we have a medieval manuscripts book list that links to a number of children's books that you have used in your classroom or have discovered since that talk about the medieval practice of bookmaking. And one of the books you reviewed, The Ink Garden of Brother Theophane, or how would you say that name? I've just been saying Theophane in my head, but as I look at it, if it's Greek, it's probably Theophane. Theophane. (laughs) No no children I've read the book to have complained about my pronunciation yet. (laughs) Oh, good. You mentioned having your students illuminate their own verse from 1 John, and you talked about opening the doors in the middle of a Wyoming winter. (laughs) Can you Mm -hmm. explain that a little bit more? Well, this was the first year that I had done this, and we were just talking about ancient manuscripts, and I bought them feathers, and we cut the feathers into tips, and I bought, you know, I got ink in bottles, and they were dipping the ink, and we were doing um, John 1-1, in the beginning was the word, and so we were illuminating the, the capital I, and I just wanted them to get the full experience, so we just opened all the doors and windows, and I said, okay, guys, you're monks. It would be cold in here. It would be cold. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Your hands would be cold and this would be hard to write properly, but you have to be perfect. And several years later, I saw some of those students and that was the one thing they remembered the most from my class. (laughs) Wow. Was being monks. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And the one girl who spilled a bottle of black ink on the carpet. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever get the ink out? We did. By the time I left the school, you could not tell that it was there. Oh, it was amazing. That is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So do you want to tell us how you got the ink out of the carpet? Because if there are moms who are going to go and try this, they're going to get ink on their carpet. They probably need to know. I'm sorry. I don't really remember. (laughs) 
<laughs> frantically. That's how we did it. Frantically. frantically. <laughs> <laughs> and quickly, you know, so it did, didn't sit there for long. So that I, that's all I remember is I was, that was my first year teaching. I was like, oh my gosh, they're going to kill me. This big black spot on the carpet. <laughs> <laughs> and yet you guys had some pretty amazing memories that came out of that. Yes. And we, I enjoyed that every year. I mean, every year that we did it, we did history on a three-year cycle with Veritas Press. And so um, with the age kids that I had, we would do the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and the Reformation. And then we would do the Explorers up to 1815 and then 1815 to the present. So I don't remember how many times I got to go through that cycle, but it was fun. I always looked forward to getting to do that one. And then we had other projects for the other years that I also enjoyed. Sure. How did you get on to this? When this unit came up, how did you decide to make the project of bookmaking the thing that you were going to do a deep dive on? I think that with most of the things I did with the kids for history, my goal was to have them understand that the life we have now in the United States is nothing like the way people have lived since the beginning of time. How easy we have it how much we take for granted. And that's one of the reasons I wanted them to be cold for a little while. <laughs> to be <laughs> you know, Even though you, yeah, you think you're suffering because I'm making you write perfect cursive with a feather pen. What if you were actually doing that in a stone monastery with no windows, you know, sitting there, mm-hmm. I don't know, warming your hands over a candle or something. Kids need to know how much we have and what things were and could be like And I think that's one of the reasons that I did that kind of projects with them. But then I just love books. And every kid I have ever taught or, you know, grand, my kids or grandkids, do you know kids who've never tried to make a book, just fold a paper in fourths and wanted a stapler? Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Everybody wants to make a book. It's. I think they do. It's native to us. Mm -hmm. You know, I always, of course, have loved books. When I was researching for Further Up and Further In and was reading everything that C.S. Lewis wrote, I remember comments then about their library, and they had quite a few books, but they were more precious then, and you didn't have as many as we have access to. And then after I did that, when I was studying Jean Stratton Porter, and in one of her writings, it was in an article, I think, but she mentions in Freckles that he had never owned a book. Right. And that just really struck me to who do you know in the United States who's never owned a book? And something that she wrote in a little, it's called A Little Story of Her Life and Work. It's just an article that she wrote about herself at the request of a magazine, I think. But she said, the market did not afford the miracles common today. Books are now so numerous, so cheap, and so bewildering in color and makeup that I sometimes think our children are losing their perspective and caring for none of them as I loved my few plain little ones filled with short story and poem, almost no illustration. And this was in the 1910s or 20s that she said that, that kids were losing their perspective. What do they have now? (laughs) How many moms today are trying to always safeguard their library of books from little hands? Because books Mm -hmm. are so plentiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you just, oh, we need to replace a book. Let's go to Amazon. It'll be here in two days. That makes me think, Diane, of a conversation that you and I have had with Jill Morgan from Purple House Press. And we've already recorded the 
conversation, and it, but it will air in a few weeks, about the fact that she's reprinting the Little Britches books, the Ralph Moody Little Britches books, and how they are being printed by offset printing, which is its own kind of craft printing. Anybody who has one of the first two books that she's done or has the Ark or Rowan Farm, you'll know what we're talking about when we talk about the rounded binding with the Smithsown pages and the the velvet touch covers and dust jackets. These kinds of things are so precious and very hard to do and very hard to find in today's marketplace. And how often do we just run out and go and get whatever's available on Amazon? Mm -hmm. I've been very blessed and I have a pretty substantial library. So I'm not in the building stage. I'm now in the curating stage. Mm -hmm. And now I am opting to buy fewer books, but buy the better quality ones. Mm -hmm. One other interesting connection is that if you study C.S. Lewis, you hear about George MacDonald somehow. Yeah, for sure. And, yeah, <laughs> I think I've read all of George MacDonald's fiction that, except for the fantasies. But one of the things that he was interested in was bookbinding. And so a couple of different characters in, di- in separate books do bookbinding. And one of the characters, I'm not going to remember the title of this book right this second, gets a job on a neighbor- neighboring estate rebinding this the books in mm. this person's library they have a big library because they're wealthy you know and that's sure. only wealthy people did that then but they've been neglected and they're starting to kind of go to ruin so he gets a job rebinding all the books and that's all he does is just sit there and you know one book at a time put them back together and that's wow. another thing that i find so interesting who would do that now right you know pitch it get another one right just buy but a better copy right Interesting. I think so. So when you did this project, I remember from your article that you actually had them cut the feathers into a nib and Mm -hmm. uh, you got these ink pots. And then when they had managed their handwriting and it was beautiful, you let them finish it with gold leaf at the end on the on the big mm-hmm. fancy eye, right? Mm-hmm. Did you ever do this with your own children in homeschool? Or was it something you learned later on and then was able to use in your classroom? It was later. I didn't do it with my children, but I did do it with my grandchildren. Oh, that's And lovely. a couple of kids that I've tutored at home since I was in the school. So every chance I get, I do this with yeah, the absolutely. kids that I'm teaching. Yeah, <laughs> And they love that gold leaf. It's almost like... One of the other things we always did in my class was that the kids would get to memorize a poem and we do a little play, just kind of an informal thing. But if they could have a piece of a costume, they would do almost anything for me. (laughs) And this is how it was with the gold leaf. I would show them how it worked and they would do almost anything to get to that point where they could use that gold leaf. And they got like a square inch of it, you know, and you got to make this go over all of it. But it was so worth it to them. This is real gold. (laughs) That's lovely. (laughs) Diane, have you put together the instructions and the shopping list if a mom wanted to go and do this with her kids? Is that something that you've put together and that we have on our website? I don't necessarily feel that I'm an expert, but I'm willing to share what I have done. And, And I have taken pictures so that I could show people, you know, here's what we came up with, not necessarily 
step-by-step process, but here are some of the resources I've used. Last time I did it, I found a website where a guy was demonstrating how you do like the, the geometrical hatching in the backgrounds and things. How do you make the lines so that you can do all those shapes that re, the repeating shapes? Cause you'll have the crisscross patterns, different kinds of geometrical shapes, but how do you do that that precisely? And he, he does little charts where here's how you measure it. And then you do all the diagonal lines this way and all the lines this way. And then you erase the ones that you don't want to get the shapes and things of that. And it's just, maybe that's obvious to some people, but I never would have figured it out myself. No, me either. And so you have that website and that will be linked in our resource kit. Yes. (laughs) So, so Diane, in your classroom, did you have children all of one age or did you have multiple ages? I have always had children of multiple ages uh, with in my classroom, I usually had third through sixth at the least. And um, that's a learning process. But as the homeschooler, you know that you're going to have to do that. Is If I'm going to do this project with my sixth grader, all the other kids are going to, going to want to participate. How absolutely. are we going to manage that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I don't know that I have any um, wisdom as far as that goes other than it's it's a juggling act and you have to figure out your own kids <laughs> well sorry nobody's judging the outcome of it either you should just oh no no get no. into it and relax and enjoy the process and mm-hmm. when you spill the ink pot just clean it up and move on <laughs> oh yeah and and like with the feathers cutting those tips is an art in itself we didn't do that perfectly no, I couldn't sit there with 12 kids watching me, you know, trying to show them how to do it and have everybody's be perfect. So that could be frustrating if we had been going for perfection and not just experience. Right. And you'll always have the one kid in class or in your own family who actually wants to get it right. And they're going to mm-hmm. get that feather right. And maybe they can help the others. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you 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 sit those down and go, okay, I'll do this one and you do that one. And I'll, then I'll do this one and you do that one. Anything to shorten the waiting <laughs> and, the, right. and the length of the line. Right. So did you find that using picture books were particularly helpful when you were dealing with a wide variety of ages? I think it's essential, even if you're not, because I don't know how else to show kids what it is you're going for. There's so much because the illuminated manuscripts are so detailed and there's all kinds of meaning in the pictures. I just, I find that so interesting and I don't, you couldn't just sit there and explain that to anybody really, Right. but you know, that's, that's the, the, attraction of them now is just looking at the colored pictures and everybody enjoys that. <laughs> you know, for readers of the Mismantle Chronicles, our, one of our favorite characters in the Mismantle series, Needle the Hedgehog, works on threadings. And the threadings are really tapestries, but they're mm. very, very much done in the same style as these illuminated manuscripts. And as the series progresses, the animals who work on the threadings have to be extremely careful when they're putting together the story of the threading. There's tons of symbolism, just like in illuminated manuscripts, different flowers signify different things. The position, Mm -hmm. if a sword is pointed up, it means victory. If it's pointed down, it means defeat. And so the way that pictures are really 
catechisms of a sort. And mm-hmm. that that's really the, the point of the illustrated manuscripts, right? Right, yes. Everything meant something. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things about the books that I've reviewed is that a lot of them come out of the author studying about these and finding some quirky little thing in the margin where mm-hmm. a frustrated monk has made a comment or drawn a doodle or something like or that. Or a mouse is stealing cheese. Yes, yes. A, a mouse, the apprentice who's supposed to do something about that. What What's the story behind that mouse there? Or the bear who ate the book. Right. <laughs> Apparently, that really <laughs> happened. Because some they found a letter, you know. Oh, sorry about your book, but a bear ate it, and that's it, maybe that's the first inter the first instance of my dog ate my homework or something. But praise God, Saint Jerome's lion didn't eat the Bible. <laughs> Where would we be? <laughs> so one of the things I've noticed as I've when I've gone through this this sort of my canon of manuscript books is that the authors usually try to make the characters. They feel really modern to me. Yeah. Let, let's have the kid who has to save her father's business because he's old and sick, but she can do it, you know. Is this Marguerite um, makes a book? Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you have the monk who, oh, golly, I just don't really think this is where I'm supposed to be. I need to express myself. And, and, yes. I feel oppressed by the job that I've been given. And they suddenly find where they fit. Uh, I don't think that former ages were as concerned about that as we are. But that's not really the important part of the book for me because the illustrators have done their research. And their job well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some of these are amazing. I think one of the things that really matters to me when I'm doing this is, as I said before, kids need to know that life has not always been this way. But also a lot of times they haven't had much experience with something that takes that much detailed work and accuracy, like with the ink. Who lets kids in second grade work in ink? Right. If you make a mistake when you're using ink, there's going to have to be a process for fixing that. You could get almost done and have to start over again. I'm not trying to purposely frustrate children, but we're talking, we're learning accuracy We're learning that some skills are involved here that you didn't have before. You're learning to be careful with what you do and pay attention in a way that a second or third grader many times has not had an opportunity to do something like that. I was working with cursive with a young man this last year. We were just practicing cursive. It didn't have anything to do with manuscripts, but he was doing it. I always have them do it with fountain pens because it's smoother it you know just glides really nicely and kids think it's fun because they've never done that and so I'm trying to make it also attractive in some way but he would he was very precise and careful but he would make a mistake and oh he just wanted to scratch it out and 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 move on and and start over again or you know just be very frustrated and I say now oh wait hold on hold on and I went and got the white out and I said if we just white that out right here and then you put the line over, see how now you can't tell and you don't have to start over again. And he had never seen whiteout. <laughs> he just went, that's cool. We have to get some of that. <laughs> oh. So I think some of it is that 
they learn the strategies to fix their mistakes. And when you look at the old manuscripts, they had to do the same thing. They couldn't pitch a piece of vellum in the trash. No. You couldn't yeah. just go out and grab another animal skin and, and right. you know, out of your ream of animal skins. They had to have strategies for fixing it. It needed to be as perfect as possible. But there was skill at every level, including fixing your mistakes. So when they would make these books, did they do the writing first or did they do the marginalia first? Do you know? I don't think there's a one answer to that because I think a lot of times it wasn't one person doing all of it. Right. Okay. One person was the artist and one person was the person doing the, the writing. So I don't know for sure about that. For the project, you had the kids cut down feathers. Yes. Did they practice with something before ink? Did you have them use fountain pens first uh, or pencils first? Because that ink is really precious, right? And messy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it is frustrating if you just jump right in with, here, we're going to learn cursive by dipping a, a, a feather in ink. I used to buy, I think it's a pilot, disposable fountain pen. and. I wanted it to be cheap because if you have a nice quill or fountain pen with a good nib, kids are going to push too hard and ruin and, them. And break them. Right. Mm -hmm. For sure. Right. And even if they're not, you know, if they don't snap them off, if you divide the little. The prongs. Yes. Then they, they'll just pour out ink and that kind of thing. So they really, and they have to practice how to hold it because it's at a different angle and it's, it feels awkward. It does compared to first. what they're used to. Mm -hmm. Right. Even though in fact it's better in your hand. It's more ergonomic right. when it's all said and done. Yes, once they get used to it and can relax. Right. That when it's when they're tense at first, it's kind of hard. But anyway, these these cheaper pens, they're just as smooth as a regular one, but they can practice without me standing there going, Oh no, ah, don't push, you know, don't <laughs> don't do that, don't do that. <laughs> and it and it's so fun. It it's so smooth. I took shorthand in high school. Our teacher insisted that we use fountain pens and we had to have two because you couldn't, if you ran out of ink, you didn't have time to stop and change because the person who's dictating is not going to stop for you. Right. And that's when I first got into using them and just how, and learned how smooth it was and how easy on your hand it is because it slides. You can't push and kids are always so prone to push really hard on their pencils when they're learning control. Yeah. So when you use a fountain pen, you if you push, you're wrong. And it's such a relief to your hand. Yeah. And it goes faster. So anyway, that's how I learned how to love them. And I still do all my most of my handwriting with a fountain pen. Yeah, I love fountain pens. I went to boarding school in Ireland for ninth grade and at Kyle Morabi. And it, they were commonplace there. Europeans love them. So it mm -hmm. was... It was just, I think, when I would go to the little store, the little school tuck shop and buy my my wares, um, I think they were approximately the same price as any other pen in the store. And mm -hmm. so I learned to use them there and, and brought them home and used them a little bit, but didn't have ready access to them here. Couldn't find more ink or whatever. Right. And when I went to college and I went to the University of Oxford, they were plenty, but I brought a stack of them home with me. <laughs> Now you can find them easily, like Pilot and so on. But back then, you know, I, I didn't know where to find them. And it is tough. Of course, you can get them on Amazon, but you have to have some kind of an office supply store near you. And I don't. 
Right. We have a small one, but you know, I'm not going to drive two hours to go buy my pen refills. So it is a right. different world now because <laughs> <laughs> I don't make my own ink. I have gotten into though, I did learn how to make paper and that kind of, I'm not sure which came first, but um, I wanted to go back. I always like to know how did people learn to make things? Mm. So I was going to learn how to make paper. Well, what did they make paper out of? A lot of times you're making paper out of paper, which is easier. But if you right. didn't have paper, how did you make paper? Right. Well, they made it out of plant fibers of some kind. So my very first making paper exploit was using the the leaves of irises because I have a lot of them. Oh. And I had found a recipe for doing that. So I was saving all my iris leaves and was going to do that for part of a Christmas present, the covers of a book that I was making. And it's hard. <laughs> they came out terrible because you have to beat those fibers. And I didn't have good equipment for that. But that was a really interesting lesson for me because things like that do take some specialized equipment. And I didn't have it. And so I was trying my best to function without that. And it didn't work very well. But my son now has this book that he can never, ever throw away because his mother made it. <laughs> but it wasn't very good. So then I thought, okay, I will break down and I will make paper out of paper. So um, I've been doing that for my quilling projects for a few years now. And it's really kind of fun. It's sort of a relaxing, almost like a back to the earth kind of thing that you would do. Right. It is pretty amazing when we're able to go back to how things are made and then say, okay, so how would I do this? And I, mm -hmm. you, you feel like a hero. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I sewed this. I baked this. I made yes. this. <laughs> or I just spent three hours making four pieces of paper. <laughs> and you, you think our grandmothers, our depression era grandmothers would just say, that's impressive. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> so Diane, if I wanted to do this with my kids, I would probably practice first. <laughs> did you just jump right in and do it? Or did you, did you kind of teach it to yourself first? I didn't get a lot of practice before I did it the first time because in the school that I was teaching, we kind of came up with our own projects and found our own supplies and just sort of decided what we were going to do. And I'm sort of a by the seat of your pants project doer anyway. Oh, wow. I'm the opposite. <laughs> I'm a planner and a plotter. <laughs> I've noticed that. <laughs> really? Did you? Yes. <laughs> I always did make sure I had all the supplies because it's really hard to get in, in a group of kids and you want them to do something and, and there's 10 of them, but you only ended up with eight pens or something. There's just no way to do that. Right. So I would make sure I had everything I needed. But as far as like, I didn't necessarily do this entire example of my illuminated eye and here's what I want. We sort of worked together through it, I think, at the first time. And then did you have them do marginalia as well? Mm -hmm. And so did you give them any like symbols to use or let them do their own? Well, I showed them some because I wanted to practice. I wanted them to practice as many things as we could. Uh, and, and it just, some of the kids were, no, this has to be perfect and I'm only doing this. And other ones are the doodler types who would try different things. And I'm a really low key art teacher as well, because if a child doesn't enjoy it, then I don't want them to do it. Mm -hmm. I don't push. 
mm-hmm. um, and not every teacher is like that. We're this is the project we're doing, and you're going to do everything I asked you to, or else. No. <laughs> I had a middle school teacher give me a C in art simply because oh. I had no skill. It wasn't because oh. I wasn't trying. Oh I my always, goodness! Yeah, oh my I thought goodness. if I was in high school and thinking about going to college for art, well, then grade me correctly. But right, as yeah. a, it actually terrified me to mm-hmm. ever take ever try to do art ever again. Oh, but I think that's part of the experience. And one of the reasons I do it is that how do you know whether you like this sort of thing if you've never even known it was possible? And if your and hands then, if your hands don't intuitively work that way, how do you convince them to do that without practicing? Right. And if it, is it something that's worth it to you to practice, even though it's hard? Mm-hmm. I, I remember a couple of my favorite boy students just thinking art was the dumbest thing. There are certain things they had to do and learn because they need to know how they really feel about it. But if they don't like it because they'd rather be out riding a horse and and bucking hay, then I'm okay with that as long as you tried and were cooperative. Right. Because I think that's what this is about is learning about different things that are possibilities that you didn't know. Right. Exactly. It's about. Did you enjoy that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did enjoy that? Okay, let's don't do it again. One of the projects we did more than once during our middle ages unit was the bio tapestry and just a little piece of it, but we would talk about the story and then I would show them, you know, pictures on the inter- internet of the original and then um Veritas Press in their book that we had had a little printed piece of paper that you could copy and put your picture of the story in there. And the boys really did kind of like that because you got to draw little stick figures of people getting shot with arrows and things. I was going to say there was a lot of blood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that was more attractive to the boys than some of this detail with the manuscripts, but you just never know who's going to like what. And I think it's worth a try. I never would have thought that my boys would have gotten into origami. I would have thought that that was too fussy oh, yeah. for them uh-huh. or, or quilling. And, mm-hmm. you know, both of my boys, they were big into origami. And then when you sent me that piece of quilled fruit and berries, they, it, that just opened a whole new world. And so then mm-hmm. they got into quilling in a big way. Yeah. My boys, when I was cross-stitching when they were little, they always wanted to know how to do whatever I was doing. And they were really good cross-stitchers. And my grandson is an excellent quiller. And Beautiful. they just picked it up simply so yeah and michael is knitting you a pair of mittens right Mm -hmm. now (laughs) yeah and i don't even know how to knit (laughs) me either (laughs) diane i am so happy that you have the medieval manuscripts book list on our site i've always thought those books were beautiful when i was a child i was very fortunate to go to ireland and i actually saw the book of kells uh, more than once (sighs) yes (laughs) <laughs> I agree. My imagination was captivated. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about the bio tapestry, uh, I was able, I grew up with a lot of tapestries in my home. And so I've always been captivated by that kind of art. I have zero, I mean, zero skill. <laughs> <laughs> can't draw a thing. That, I can't draw a straight line. <laughs> um, but I have loved these books. And I've always thought that any of them really would be treasures worth worth getting from the library for sure, and maybe even purchasing for our library. You don't even need all of them. 
just one or two so that you can see the examples that, that the illustrators have done and, and go from there. And if you can get from them from the library, I think it's a wonderful thing for the library to know that these books are valued. And mm -hmm. every time we request them, it, you know, it, it communicates to the librarians that these are things that should be kept mm -hmm. in circulation. So, so thank you for sharing this with us. But more importantly, thank you for compiling the list and reviewing those books so that moms can find those and, and uh, check them out for themselves. Well, it's been a lot of fun. <laughs>